Welcome to Voice of the People Radio Buy and For the 99% for June 11th, 2022. We began the show, the intro music, Leonard Cohen's Democracy, which we're very fond of, and we keep using it over and over again because it succinctly represents what we're trying to do for the next 120 minutes. So you're listening to KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio. But now that I've told you 105.5, you can forget it because <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're moving to a new 
broadcast frequency with a an increase in power only of about a you know 35 times and but currently but we are live streaming on 1055kfgm.org uh now on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash vop hyphen montana or searchable on spotify and other podcast apps under voice of the people radio buying for the 99 percent and starting next week we are moving to 101.5 fm as we have become a full powered community radio station and our new website will be 1015kfgm.org see that tricky move the digit around <laughs> drop the file power grab make it a one. It's a power yeah. grab that's yeah. it power grab <laughs> Our podcast URL will remain the same. And uh, sound man Jim here, as always, as long as Mick can't be back to do an even better job. And I'm joined by <laughs> Linda Gillison and Mark Anderlich. So the dynamic duo. Hey, so this I'll, is going to be a good show. Yeah, it's going to be a good show. We will soon broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, 66% uh, of which are in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai. And Linda, you've got a change to offer. I have, yes, because I'm in North Carolina, so I'm in the home of the Tuscar <coughs> Tuscar <coughs> Chokes me up, too. <laughs> I know, Tuscarora, <laughs> before they moved north to join the Five Nations, and also the Lumbee. And I want to say that there's a member of the Lumbee tribe who is running for U.S. Congress from a congressional district down in the southeast of the country so he'll be an excellent addition i believe you can't Great. be any more specific than that can you give us a congressional <laughs> district i don't Name know what names. his district is he's from the lumberton river area and he's uh what do i know it's down in sort of the the southeast corner in the lowlands of north carolina and his name is Ooh, okay. charles graham all right Okay, I'll, I'll be looking for him. You know, a little bit of that Woodford Reserve would, would sort of clear that little. <laughs> oh, shh. we're not supposed to say that. Thanks, Mark. Oh, no. And <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> we're, in, we're in the comfort of our own home, soon to be in a brand new broadcast studio at the Everett Public Library. Yeah. I was wiring it up. There you Wednesday go. Wednesday morning, and it's going to be wonderful. It's it's disrupting Great. our entire our entire script here already. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> exactly. Um, well, despite all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not quite over yet. Um, we need to hang in there, still by doing our part by wearing masks when you are inside in public and by frequent washing of your hands. The show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio. And we want to give old Mick a shout out. Hey, Mick. 
Woot woot. Hey, Mick. Woot woot. You're well. <laughs> woot woot. And woot. Uh, we would like you to be a guest to the new broadcast studio and see what your digs would be. There we you go. Dig yourself you go. out of your easy chair at home and yeah. come in and, and do That's this right. show. That's right. Do your job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm guessing that we have a word of the week and it's nationalism. It certainly is. And um, it certainly is. <laughs> I stepped on your line there, Jim. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no kidding. The word of the That's week, so is there seems to be a lot of it about lately yeah yeah in, indeed okay. and 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 there is as the uh not uncoincidentally as the old world order is crumbling before our eyes yeah mm -hmm. so that being the case what is nationalism can you be specific mark i i will sure try um <clears throat> but to begin as regular listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we include this note about Wikipedia. Each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. That said, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, Nationalism is an idea and movement that holds that the nation should be congruent with the state. As a movement, nationalism tends to promote the interests of a particular nation, as in a group of people, especially with the aim of gaining and maintaining the nation's sovereignty over its homeland to create a nation state. Nationalism holds that each nation should govern itself free from outside interference that a nation is a natural and ideal basis for a polity, and that the nation is the only rightful source of political power. It further aims- Or another kind of violence. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Sorry. Um, uh, it further aims to build and maintain a single national identity based on shared social characteristics of culture, ethnicity, geographic location, language, politics, religion, traditions, and belief in a shared singular history, and to promote national unity or solidarity. Nationalism, therefore, seeks to preserve and foster a nation's traditional culture. There are various definitions of a nation, which leads to different types of nationalism. The two main divergent forms are ethnic nationalism and civic nationalism, end quote. Yeah, it, this reminds me of a quote from a guy from the Apennine Peninsula. He said, everything for the state, everything by the state, nothing outside the state. His, didn't his, he just, his, didn't his he just name, sum it up? Is his first name Benito? Benito. Yeah, that good Mexican revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, it, it, it does. It doesn't fit. But then again, we're going to be talking a lot about Latin America. So it is a good segue. Yes. So. So, for example, the United States, being a very mixed ethnic population, would practice mainly civic nationalism. I, I think so. Um, it is our faith in democracy, the Constitution, and our history, for example, that binds the U.S. nation state and defines U.S. nationalism. But not every nation shares the same elements that define their own nationalism. 
So where does nationalism come from? Well, uh, we go back to Wikipedia again. The consensus among scholars is that nations are socially constructed and historically contingent, which means that it's people that create nations and nation states and that in a certain time of history, right? And that uh, over time that changes. Um, throughout history, people have had an attachment to their kin group and traditions, territorial authorities and their homeland. But nationalism did not become a prominent ideology until the end of the 18th century. There are three prominent perspectives on nationalism. There's what's called primordialism, which reflects popular conceptions of nationalism, but has largely fallen out of favor among academics. And that and it proposes that there have always been nations and that nationalism is a natural phenomenon. The second kind is ethno-symbolism or second source, ethno-symbolism, fancy word, which explains nationalism as a dynamic evolutionary phenomenon and stresses the importance of symbols, myths, and traditions in the development of nations and nationalism. In modern, modernization theory, which has superseded primordialism as the dominant explanation of nationalism, adopts a, a constructivist approach uh, and proposes that nationalism emerged due to processes of modernization, which is always continuing, by the way, uh, mm -hmm. to some degree, such as industrialization, urbanization, and mass education, which made national consciousness possible. Proponents of this latter theory describe nations as, quote, imagined communities and nationalism as an invented tradition in which shared sentiment provides a form of collective identity and binds individuals together in political solidarity. A nation's foundational story may be built around a combination of ethnic attributes, values, and principles, uh, and I would add in like historical events, and may be closely <laughs> connected to narratives of belonging, end quote. Yeah. I, you know, I had some um, empathy there with ethno-symbolism, but um, I guess uh, I'm being an old guy that just can't keep up. And modernization theory is where it's at now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the apparently the according to Wikipedia, that's the latest mm -hmm. theory. But I think there's something to be said about the second one too that it's a, a process. Um, but you know, right. that's that's our our speculation. Um, Shall I add that uh, we have seen the rise of nationalism in the U.S. with a Mr. Trump and the rise of the far-right nationalist groups like the Proud Boys, white nationalist groups, and neo-Nazis? Yes, yes, we have. And these groups, I think, are, um, I mean, their, their social function, I think, political function, they're trying to fill the void of belief left after um, kind of recognition that the rule of the oligarch, uh, that we're under the rule of oligarchs uh, who practice neoliberalism, right? Neoliberal capitalism. Mm -hmm. So um, which this rule by the elite in the US is directly contrary to the nationalism the US citizens have believed in for a very long time. Um, but nationalism is not just associated with the right wing. Again, from Wikipedia, Quote, nationalism can be combined with diverse political goals and ideologies such as conservatism, 
um, also called national conservatism and right-wing populism, or socialism, which is left-wing nationalism or left-wing populism. In practice, nationalism is seen as positive or negative depending on its ideology and outcomes. Nationalism has been a feature of movements for freedom and justice, has been associated with cultural revivals, and encourages pride in national achievements. It has also been used to le legitimize racial, ethnic, and religious divisions, suppress or attack minorities, and undermine human rights and democratic traditions. Radical nationalism combined with racial hatred was a key factor in the Holocaust perpetrated by Nazi Germany, end quote. Yes, and the nationalism of Nazism in that era was just another feature of a whole bunch of things going on right. in most every country in Europe. So nationalism has a mixed history. Yes, indeed. And just like populism, it can be adopted by the right or the left. The strength of U.S. nationalism and the history of the U.S. empire has led directly to the belief in U.S. exceptionalism, which we mention at least once on every show. <laughs> oh, yeah. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be voice of the people connection. without yeah. a slap at U.S. exceptionalism. Oh, no. Right. But that's it's a it's a it's a outcome of, you know, U.S. nationalism. Right. Um, exactly. If you can't be right, you can be exceptional. <laughs> so nationalism has a mixed history. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, well, nationalism began amazingly relatively recently. Um, this is from Wikipedia. Uh, scholars frequently place the beginning of nationalism in the late 18th century or the early 19th century with the American Declaration of Independence or with the French Revolution. The consensus is that nationalism as a concept was firmly established by the 19th century. In histories of nationalism, the French Revolution, which was in 1789, is seen as an important starting point, not only for its impact on French nationalism, of course, but even more for its impact on Germans and Italians and on European intellectuals. The template of nationalism as a method for mobilizing public opinion around a new state based on popular sovereignty went back further than 1789. Philosophers such as Rousseau and Voltaire, whose ideas influenced the French Revolution, had themselves been influenced or encouraged by earlier, by the example of earlier constitutionalist liberation movements, notably the Corsican Republic in 1755 to 1768 and the American Revolution of 1775 to 1783. Wow. So, so the origins of nationalism in part can be traced to the American Revolution. Absolutely. And the French Revolution as well. So they're all kind of about the same time period. Um, but many U.S. nationalists would likely not accept what nationalism substantially replaced. Um, again, from Wikipedia, uh, writing shortly after World War I, the popular British author H.G. Wells, who's also a historian, traced the origin of European nationalism to the aftermath of the Reformation, okay, the, the creation of Protestantism in Christianity, when it filled the moral void left by the decline of Christian faith. He said, as the idea of Christianity as a world brotherhood of men sank into discredit because of its fatal entanglement with priestcraft and the papacy on the one hand, and with the authority of princes on the other, 
and the age of faith passed into our present age of doubt and disbelief. Men shifted the reference of their lives from the kingdom of God and the brotherhood of mankind to these apparently more living realities, France and England, Holy Russia, Spain, Prussia. In the 13th and 14th centuries, the general population of Europe was religious and only vaguely patriotic. By the mm -hmm. 19th, it had become wholly patriotic. Yeah, so nationalism in Wells' eyes is really a civic religion that filled the void left by the end of Catholic government in Europe. I, I think that that and Linda's nodding her head. I do you yeah. do you agree with that too? <laughs> well, I think so. I think so. And actually, yeah. Mark, what what I've been trying to figure out how it fits in here is that sometime when we were involved in a Facebook conversation and I was sort of depressed about everything that's going on. And you quoted something to me from Gramsci mm -hmm. about how it's the time when an old order is dying and the new order is being mm -hmm. birthed. And it's a period of monsters. Wasn't that's that right. follow that's up? It. Wasn't that Ooh. his follow up? So I, you know, I just keep thinking of what we had before nationalism and what's come after nationalism and the odd transition and then what yeah. we ended up with. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's good. Um, and it just occurred to me that the American Revolution was instrumental in nationalism and um, the Corsican Republic. And where was Napoleon from? Yeah, Corsica. Of course, of Corsica. <laughs> of course. Oh, okay. I beat you to the punch on that one. Yes, yeah, yeah, well, sure did. Well, I mean, in the United States, we got nationalism but, well, we can talk about this later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get there for sure. Okay. Um, so we'll make sure your voice is heard. So <laughs> Linda, <Yeah>. rather. <laughs> it's all right, Jane. It's all right. It's all right, Linda. <laughs> so um, yeah. belief shared with others is one of the things that make us human. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think this is, you know, nationalism comes out of very human need and, and quality, right? Um, but that belief doesn't necessarily mean organized religion as we know it. It has sometimes come to mean our team or the side we choose to be loyal to and to stand with, right? Mm -hmm. um, again, from Wikipedia, um, George Orwell, the noted author, right? And mm -hmm. uh, uh, distinguishes nationalism from patriotism, which he defines as devotion to a particular place. More abstractly, nationalism is, according to Orwell, power, <laughs> power hunger tempered by self-deception. <laughs> I love it. I love he, it. He had a, he had a pretty jaundiced view of nationalism, right? Um, yeah. And he had a way with words. You got yes, it. absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, for Orwell, the nationalist is more likely than not dominated by irrational negative impulses. And he also wrote, so this is um, taking it out of this in, in a context that people don't hear very often, says there are, for example, Trotskyists who have become sim simply enemies of the USSR without developing a corresponding loyalty to any other unit. When one grasps the implications of this, the nature of what I mean by nationalism becomes a good deal clearer. A nationalist is one who thinks solely or mainly in terms of competitive prestige. 
He may be a positive or a negative nationalist. That is, he may use his mental energy either in boosting or in denigrating. But at any rate, his thoughts always turn on victories, defeats, triumphs, and humiliations. He sees history, especially contemporary history, as the endless rise and decline of great power units, and every event that happens seems to him a demonstration that his own side is on the upgrade, and some hated rival is on the downgrade. But finally, it is important not to confuse nationalism with mere worship of success. The nationalist does not go on to the principle of simply ganging up with the strongest side. On the contrary, having picked his side, he persuades himself that it is the strongest and is able to stick to his belief even when the facts are overwhelmingly against him. End quote. Wow. How prescient uh-huh. of that man. You go. You, you, you go. You That's always right. win because you imagine that you're ahead when you're behind. And, and I think it, you know, boy. Reminds it, me of uh, Lambeau Field. I, <laughs> yeah, the, the only, what, what did he say? The, it, uh, the only thing is victory or winning is the only thing, you know. Right, everything right. Else is, um, winning isn't everything it's the only thing that's it thank you yeah. I, I knew i butchered that one yeah no um, no that's okay just because they're called the packers doesn't mean you have to be a butcher <laughs> well i think it's interesting here because, i'm sorry Jim. oh go ahead yeah uh, don't okay. apologize linda you're in charge because uh uh i like what he says on the contrary having picked a side he persuades himself that is the strongest and at least in the case of the United States, I think persuades himself that it's also the best. Right. Oh Not yeah. Not, right. So this we're is the winner, but we've got this whole complex of morality behind us. Right. right, right. It, it's the it, it's the uh, you know the exceptionalism that right. is right. so right. frequent in, in our right. society. Right. Thank you for bringing that up. Somebody because yeah. it's always banging that jet triangle exceptionalism whenever <laughs> you can fit it in. That's right. Well, um, you know, this is this again is from Wikipedia. It's kind of uh, going along the same thought. Um, The political development of nationalism and the push for popular sovereignty culminated with the ethnic national revolutions of Europe. During the 19th century, nationalism became one of the most significant political and social forces in history. It is typically listed among the top causes of World War One. Napoleon's conquests of the German and Italian states around 1800-1806 played a major role in stimulating nationalism. Speaking of uh, Napoleon, right, in, of Corsica, mm-hmm. um, and the demands for national unity. English historian J.P.T. Burry argues between 1830 and 1870, nationalism had thus made great strides. It had inspired great literature, quickened scholarship, and nurtured heroes. It had shown its power both to unify and to divide. And that's important. Um, it had led to great achievements of political construction and consolidation in Germany and Italy, which was divided politically into to like a million different principalities mm-hmm. and city-states. And, they, uh, <clears throat> and so the, the heroes of Germany and Italy, um, the national heroes, are the ones who brought them all together into the modern states of Germany and Italy. Um, but it is it was more clearly than ever a threat to the Ottoman and Habsburg empires, which were essentially multinational. Mm-hmm. Okay. European mm-hmm. culture had been enriched by the new vernacular 
uh, contributions of little known or forgotten peoples. But at the same time, such unity as it had was imperiled by fragmentation. Moreover, the antagonisms fostered by nationalism had made not only for wars, insurrections, and local hatreds, they had accentuated or created new spiritual divisions in a nominally Christian Europe, end quote. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. I have never heard of J.P.T. Burry. Maybe if he had fewer initials in front of his name, he'd <laughs> be more memorable. But He, he, he wouldn't uh, be a British academic without that's right. He has to be. He has to be. Yeah, that's, um, that's fabulous because it, the, the outliers in Western Europe would be Italy and Germany. It was very fragmented and had and was made up of a whole of a hodgepodge of kingdoms and things where, you know, the U.K., France, um, Spain, more or less, they were, you know, they had solidified a sense of self that was a lot more durable and had more history. Mm. Well, and I would argue about Spain. I think Spain is probably the most divided country in Europe uh, besides Ukraine. <laughs> um, and uh, they and, and they've they've kind of uh, their national. Well, yeah, their nation state seems to have been pushed together uh, by, uh, um, you know, Franco. Right. Mm -hmm. Especially. But. Yeah, but they become an outlier because Franco had pretty much gone through that process and they were sitting out the entire uh, miasma that was the Second World War. Yeah, well, they went through their own miasma 10 years earlier, right? Exactly. So Spanish Civil War, um, which was also class-based and nation-based, mm -hmm. right? It was exactly. both. Um, That'd so, be a good show topic. Very complicated. Right? I, and, exactly. and, you know, and I want to, I've been reading about Spain lately. Um, there's a lot of interesting history about Spain and currently too. So that's, that's why yeah, I brought it up, Mark. I wanted to segue let's into Let's do that. Yeah. You're encouraging. <laughs> um, so, uh, so nationalism divided or unified people while dividing others. That's right. And history is so full of examples of, of all of this. So, and people choosing to go back in history to reclaim the national identity through far-right reactionary groups and activity face creating new divisions within the nation that would likely undermine any success of reunifying the nation. Um, and, and that's sort of like what you think about with Hitler, right? The, the, mm -hmm. Why the final solution was uh, you know, it was getting rid of the undesirables, the ones that didn't fit into that, in, into that Nazi national narrative. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it was, you know, I mean, there was all sorts of other reasons for that as well, but that, that, that nationalism played a big role in that. And in Germany, nationalism was, uh, you know, it was a, a fragile coalition, even at that point. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, so and, and Hitler apparently learned a lot about how to get rid of, how to deal with the other mm -hmm. from the United States and racial relationships yes. and power. And right. And, and creating, well, and like South exactly. Africa, uh, whoever, you know, the nationalist government in South Africa, for instance, learned from the United States about how we put Native people on reservations. Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. why they created the Bantu stands. That was directly yeah. inspired. Mm -hmm. So nationalism, I mean, that's, these are the people who suffer under mm -hmm. uh, rampant and, nationalism. And, and, and Spanish um, colonial practices in the New World. 
Cuba was where concentration camps started. Oh, really? So, yeah. Well, I throw that in there since we're going to talk about Latin Americans. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, well, that's good. But thank Um, you for bringing that point up, Sue, because it's so mm -hmm. easy to forget that um, the gracious South had a big role in teaching people how to discriminate and isolate. (laughs) So... What are some ways? And this no, this also reminds me of us today, right? I mean, yes. oh, yeah. the same thing we're doing is trying to, some groups are trying to unify us all against the old Celtic, Arthurian mythologies, right? Mm-hmm. And creating huge barriers by doing that. Because, I mean, if you make a community, you by definition close people out. Right. Right. That's right. what schismogenesis is. It's making a community by throwing other people out. And so there you go. You end up with more division than you maybe had before mm-hmm. because you're doing your darndest to unify everybody around one myth. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, you got to. Oh, around your own lie. Right. Lives, right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Should we read The Hobbit now? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. If we run out of time, Jim, I can oh, probably, I'm sure. Right. It's true. So um, what are some ways of rebuilding a national identity without creating new divisions? You set well, me up for that one, Sue. Yeah. And this is this is sort of the big question, right? So nationalism in the past has uh, been used to, you know, create some unity where there was a lot of division. And right now, um, if, if we... You know, and I'm I'm kind of speculating here because this this was the question that sort of challenged me. I mean, what what is the alternative to like the white nationalists, right? Saying, well, let's make this a white nation, right? And 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 do it very ethnically, right? That the European, certain Europeans, not all Europeans, right, right, right. Um, certain European nationalities. That's you know, that's the identity. That's how we can get back together and be, you know, be right. a, a, as a people act together. Um, but you know, I think it's, uh, I, I I think there's, you know, this is a time of big change, right? As as you say, it's a time of monsters, right? Because we're in between the old order falling apart and the new order taking shape. And I'm just speculating here. So you can, you can chime in, you know, after I say this, but those of us in the U S I think we need to deal with the rule of the oligarchs under neoliberal capitalism and replace it with the rule of democracy, both in politics and in the economy. And to this, and and to this add the renunciation of empire. Okay. So exactly. through fighting, the, through fighting these battles, we can find a shared identity as the 99% in overthrowing the oligarchs, democratizing the economy, and acting in solidarity with the 99% in other nations. Through, through this shared effort, we could, I think, redefine a healthier and more sustainable U.S. nationalism. Without, yeah. throw, without throwing out the good stuff about the U.S., right? I mean, our, our tradition of democracy and constitutional law and, you know, and, and the, the good things that this country has done. Um, I mean, we really emphasize a lot of the bad, right? But, um, and it hasn't been much good lately, but, um, but we, do have, we do have positive things. And one thing I think also is a part of U.S. nationalism that I, that I 
am very proud of this country about is that we have had, um, until neoliberalism has really started to undermine it, we have had a very strong civic engagement uh, to, to actually, we, we've set the example for a lot of people around the world for this civic engagement, this, the idea that everyone is, uh, you know, a part owner of the country, right. Or a mm-hmm. part owner of the government and that we get involved and we do, you know, we build libraries, t- you know, together, mm-hmm. we do things together. And that's something that's not present in a lot of countries or very yeah, wasn't strongly. It, wasn't it, um, Andrew Carnegie that went around building libraries mm-hmm. in towns and cities all over the country. Right. But it wasn't yeah, just, sure. it wasn't just him. Right. Either. Oh, true. It was like, you know, I know that the, uh, there was a committee of citizens in Missoula that um, they got money from Carnegie, but they had to basically make it happen. And they organized oh, themselves in, in, in that happened like in towns all across the country. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a that's a solid part of our democracy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And a part that should be in bold print in in the civics textbook, which will be the primer and the alpha and omega for people's understanding of what their country is and, and where they fit in. And yeah. it isn't. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's going to be worked out as we're fighting for that. Right. Right. You know, and, mm-hmm. and I think that, that it's, that it's, it's like, this is our, Amer- this is like our second American revolution in a sense. Right. And this, how this works out, I mean, if it works out, right. Um, could be the story and the myth and the, and the, and the connection that binds us together again for the next, you know, for the next couple centuries, maybe. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> that's that's leaving a topic on a high note, Mark. I'm pretty impressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, is it? Do we have the temerity as a group to talk about news from this week? <laughs> well, Mark does. Mark temerity. Does. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I I just went into my kitchen and I pulled out a jar of t- uh, temerity. Um, oh, good, and you no started kidding. drinking it. Or, or, and I started, yeah. right. I or, started. If you that got it is, at Costco, it's a five-gallon jug. It, it's my anti-COVID, uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna sell it online for twenty dollars a bottle. Anyway, you um, and Manuka honey. Oh, oh, call you, to action. Oh, FCC is uh, gonna spank us for that. <laughs> we oh, won't get into is, our new studio. We're gonna be sent right to jail. Th- this is in no way an, an endorsement for any product whatsoever. No, no. So may true. I go? May I go back to what we were talking about? Just a yes, yes. Please ago. do. Um, uh, my daughter and I talk about this a lot. You know, back in the olden days, we used just to hear news from Walter Cronkite and Peter Jennings and those people, and you know, and we didn't have twenty-four right. hour news, twenty-four right. seven. Huntley and Brinkley. Oh, right, those Halcyon in, days. In the of same way, newscasters until the sixties. There was an idea amongst some people that other people were being kept safely in their place. Hmm. And 
once the 60s came, that idea was shaken. And now we have all of these voices that are trying to talk about, and maybe that, that's where our second American revolution is coming from, is how do we get all of those voices, which will not be silenced, and we don't want, most of us don't want them to be silenced, into a voice which isn't, suicidal or cannibalistic mm -hmm. but isn't homogeneous either right. you know mm, right. so we hear people coming from every area contributing to things which is not really the way it went in you know uh in certain parts of our of our yeah. history right. and if you right. if you go back to american history in, in its foundational period and you go back to the 17th and 18th centuries there was there was a drive in the these communities to do just that mm -hmm. and there's a very rich history of how hard people tried and where did it all go mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i just you know my, my daughter always says but mom you know when i'm saying oh things are such a mess she says but mom back in your childhood right we only heard one voice they were mm -hmm. only white guys speaking to us on the evening news. And it was easier then mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. not to worry about anybody else. So right. that's a good point. That's a really good point. And it, it's possible, you know, it, again, it's back. We get back to this. The old order is dying and the new order is like, mm -hmm. is, is there's possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. that, right. That we didn't have back then. I think. Right. Yeah. Yep. Right. Great, great point. Now let's go to the depressing news on COVID. <laughs> oh, I know. You gotta get out your Kleenex now. My daughter has COVID. My daughter. COVID oh no! I'm still And she has COVID. Yeah. After all this time, <sighs> it's happening to lots of us now. It, it is. It is. In fact, uh, I. I was going to write something about the, the the sort of the breakthrough through the vaccines is is becoming way more common now, but there's I, I think we need to dedicate more time to it. So we'll we'll, right. we'll spend that on another show. Um, okay. But um, we have a track record of being able to do that. Yeah, we do. Us, we Absolutely. can do it. We did it once. We can do it again. Yep. <laughs> Well, despite 18 months of vaccine, 18 months, so that's a year and a half we've had vaccines, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> Against COVID-19 being available in the U.S., the pandemic is still with us. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now steady at a rate of about 108,500 cases a day, down from over 1.3 million per day on January 10th, 2022, which was only six months ago, right? Yeah. Um, which was by far the highest rate for the U.S. during the entire pandemic. However, now many scientists and others question the validity and accuracy of the CDC's case numbers because of the prevalence of unreported home tests. And I'm not being generous, but the general <laughs> incompetency of the CDC. <laughs> um, Oh, boy. So uh, the, the highest per capita rates of COVID infection today are in, of all places, Taiwan still, Portugal, New Zealand, Panama, Singapore, Bahrain, Chile, France, Uruguay, and the U.S. in that order, where new variants of COVID-19 virus is making the rounds. 
Um, at over 1 million, 1.1 million deaths, the U.S. is still by far the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent to the population of the city of San Jose, California. And by the way, uh, there's a lot of orphans now because of COVID. Uh, okay. And have we have we had a community discussion about that? No, no, no. Um, so the U.S. has so far accounted for 16% of all the deaths in the world, and even with unreliable data, for 16% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Oh, here that's comes Jim num- with his yeah. weekly, right. with his weekly <laughs> liturgy. Yeah, it's like Paul Revere's ride. These are <laughs> right. grim things to be exceptional at. And, it, it, uh, and the proportions on that are unwavering. Somehow well, we managed to be in order of magnitude worse than everybody else. And to put on my nationalistic hat, we are the greatest, wealthiest nation in the world. That's right. End quote. Yep. But also the most exceptional. Oh. <laughs> also the most exceptional. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And, <laughs> and we're exceptional at, at this, unfortunately. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> and I love the next line, Mark. You are you are really clairvoyant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. As 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 uh, uh, you were about to say, I thought I thought Jim, you handled it quite well. But that's nothing to hang our nationalist hat on. So, um, right. Well, the muses have spoken. <laughs> so, Indeed. what's the situation now in the last best place? Well, according to the state of Montana COVID nineteen website and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website. Montana has had 3,434 deaths from COVID, and that's 34 in the last two weeks. Okay, so people are still mm-hmm. dying from COVID. Um, this is about equal to that of the population of the town of Glasgow, the, the total number of deaths. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a rising rate of about 214 new cases a day, fully 25%, and it's probably gone up from there. of all Montanans have had or have COVID. And there are currently 71 people hospitalized with the virus, up 30 from two weeks ago, but still under the point where it's it's gonna press the ICU units uh, in hospitals. There are, uh, let's see, we have been saying this since February, 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. That's, a, that's our pledge. That's why we keep this in here. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors, to distance themselves from others as best you can, to frequently wash your hands and to get the vaccine if we're gonna beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. Here, here. That's a nationalistic, jingoistic talk right there. Solidarity <laughs> requires some sacrifice. Yep. So um, what's next in the news for us, Mark? It's well, good news, Hope. Well, I did, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Well, have uh, either one of you watched this week's U.S. House of Representatives January 6th Select Committee's primetime hearing led by Chairman Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi, mm-hmm. and Vice President chairwoman liz cheney a republican from wyoming had either one of you been following it i watched part of it last night it actually comes on too late for old people in this <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Well, it's a time zone thing. I'm right? advantage to being out here in credit. Montana when things come right. on at four thirty in the afternoon. Yeah. I watched part of it. I watched um, uh, most of Liz Cheney's presentation. Hmm. And what and what was your what, what was your thoughts about it? What was your I had really mixed feelings about the whole issue of having public hearings because I, I just think that people's minds are not going to be changed. I think that a lot of people who maybe from my point of view need to be watching these are not watching these right. because they believe it's a travesty and a hoopla and that kind of thing. Um, um, it was very rational and very well presented last night. I have to say Liz Cheney is doing what a lot of people are not doing. And that is in my mind, standing up for the doing the right thing mm -hmm. right now. Um, and it may cost her, but um, I, I think we have to thank her, thank her for it. So um, I didn't see any of the new testimony. I just sort of saw Liz's summary of what they knew, uh, which was, of course, all pointing toward uh, President Trump mm -hmm. in, in preparation for January the 6th. Yeah. What was your thoughts, Jim? Or have uh, you been well, following I've, well, I, I haven't seen much visual stuff. I'm a radio guy, so I don't, I don't want to be distracted. <laughs> way to, way to go, my Jim. eyes busy, go. but I've been listening to a great deal of it on, um, uh, you know, pu public radio and um, other sources yeah. that are free to think their way. And uh, it has really been astounding. Uh, and as Linda says, it's unfortunate that here it is being spread out in front of you and a lot of people are going to say well that can't be true that's not what tucker carlson says so who are these people yeah my my, my feeling and i haven't i didn't watch any of it um but I, i've been following it just a little bit i've, I've kind of feel like that i get this overwhelming feeling that this is like a highly politicized um event right so it's where I mean, you know, the the people who rioted at the and and uh, you know broke the law at the Capitol. I mean, they need to be held accountable. I I have no problem with that. I mean, it's it's this sort of thing where um, they weren't provoked in in sort of the usual direct manner, right? So they couldn't say self defense. But I, I do feel like most of the people and, and, and it was a small fraction that actually you know did violence right it was a, mm -hmm. uh, there's there's definitely accounts where most of the people kind of went along you know just sort of went along with it and went in the capital and then left right and the capital was open right um uh but <clears throat> i think that um i mean it, ostensibly open right it should be open but um, it, it's sort of, to me, it's kind of like, well, uh, it, it, this kind of show doesn't bring in kind of the other threats to our democracy, right? Cause that clearly was a threat, right? There's no question to, to the, you know, the lives of, of, you know, the vice president and the people in Congress, but also, um, <clears throat> I think, a, you know, maybe some bigger threats, 
uh, we'll, we'll never see a congressional hearing. And some people will say, well, this never happened. I know people who mm-hmm. said that to me where, uh, like the, uh, the whole Russiagate stuff, uh, I think, uh, is proving to be a more profound threat than this, this riot, uh, mm-hmm. this attempted at insurrection and, and, and the, uh, you know, democratic national committee, uh, basically, blackballing Bernie Sanders's campaign. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think I, I think those are at least as equal of a threat to our democracy mm-hmm. as uh, mm-hmm. as as the riot on January 6th. And but they'll probably never get a hearing. Right. And and even the you know, the the leader, you know, Trump and whatnot probably won't bear any responsibility for their role. Right. You know, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama won't get pay any consequences for their role in 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 other kinds of threats so mm-hmm. i i'm 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 kind of being bipartisan here in a sense it's like yeah. <laughs> there's there's uh uh you know i think the desperation of of a lot of the people um of trump supporters in in knowing that their democracy is being taken away i don't disagree with that i disagree with the means of which they use and mm-hmm. and maybe in the explanations maybe of what they have, but um, that that feeling is genuine, and I think that this is um, not doing that feeling a very good service. No, and and I think it's I think it's an example of um, like you. I hope people who are responsible, particularly high up people, are found responsible and held, held accountable, but I don't think that's gonna happen. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, to my mind, the choice of this as a focus is cause this is the item that is likely to do the most for democratic party mm-hmm. power right. and right. respect and uh the bernie sanders thing is not going to do that and all of those other things are not going to do that but this is to my mind something despite liz cheney and whoever the other person is um kinzinger or whoever he is who's on the committee um yeah this is basically another everything they say could be right i don't know yeah uh, yeah but but it's basically the to my mind the um, motivation is partisan advancement. Yes, mm-hmm. and, I think absolutely. Um, and I worry that this is going to make somebody out there who feels as though their their ideas are not being mm, respected, as you were sort of saying, their worries are not being respected is going to take a gun and you know oh yeah and go violent again because that's what we do in this country right worry that this is with the repetition of these hearings on tv it's just going to inflame all of that Mm -hmm. feeling and the democrats hope that it will make them look good and it may but um but i don't think that's Right. Really, their motivation in doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So, are you are you um, implying stochastic violence, Linda? That 
a lot of people are unhappy, but there are going to be those outliers, those double uh -huh. deltas that, you know, that go out and get their gun and blow away. Right. Was that, was that a statistics term, Jim? Oh, you're, so you're going to draw the old I engineer. It was. I'm I sorry. Yeah, but yes, I, now that you've explained sorry. it to me, I think that's what, that's what I was talking about. There will okay. be some people who just go over the edge about this. Right, yeah. right. behind think. every good woman, there's a man with, you know, facts and data nonsense. Clutter it up. Or a man. I'm not going there, Jim. <laughs> or, or a man with an AR-15. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and yeah. It, in it. And the hearings um, reminded me that I've there seems to be, there seem to be steps in evolution of an answer to a problem, and that we have a in this country we have a lot of people that are unhappy for a lot of things they don't fully understand, but they are angry about it. And to me, it's a lot like say Germany in the twenties and the Soviet Union in the teens, where you know overall feeling of, 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 you know, distrust and frustration. Right. And then there's a coalescing of, you know, who really controls the narrative, who has enough muscle to, to exclude those that have just as compelling a story, but they're not, they're not going to get it above the fray. And that scares the hell out, heck out yeah. of me that, uh, uh -huh. that something similar could be happening in this country. Yeah. Oh, and that there will be, as we were talking about in the beginning of the show, that this there'll be a, a process of exclusion instead of um, consolidation. Right. Sure. Yep. So speaking of exclusion instead of consolidation, um, how about that uh, summit of the Americas going on in LA right now? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the ninth summit, and it's it's the first time the United States has hosted the event since the very very first one in Miami in '94. And um, according to the State Department, the, um, the the president's highest priority event for the region, as it is a hemispheric meeting of the leaders that are invited. <laughs> from the countries of the Americas, the summit serves as the most important forum to address our region's shared challenges and opportunities. And Reuters yesterday said uh, Biden is proposing a new economic partnership with Latin America in their terms aimed at countering China's growing clout. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> it's like we own you. Yeah, and of your our neighbor, right? That's right. I remember the phrase from my Latin American friends. You know, the U.S. is Tio Caiman, Uncle Alligator. Right. Uncle Alligator, right? Yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. don't stand too close. <laughs> right, that's right. Um, so, of course, you know, according to Telesur, the Bolivia, Honduras, and Guatemala, and notably Mexico, uh, are not going because mm -hmm. the U.S. chose not to invite Cuba, Venezuela. And Nicaragua. And Nicaragua. Thank you, Martin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Feeding the lines to me. And in, fact, <laughs> in fact, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO, AMLO. Uh, even called it. Uh, so is this going to be a summit of the Americas or a summit of the Friends of America? Hmm. There you go. Or the friends of the U.S. Right. Friends of the U.S., right. Because America so, extends through the whole Western Hemisphere. Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. exactly. 
Yeah, name for that good Italian, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the second in command in Mexico, uh, you know, Marcelo um, Ebrard uh, is pushing that, uh, that the U.S. has to, uh, you know, re, uh, readdress, you know, whether whether or not it's our decision to make and uh, yeah so it uh also oh excuse me it was yeah eberhard is very concerned about um the cuban embargo and that and that is his negotiating point so i'm thinking he's speaking on behalf of the whole country and he'll be the hit man and and the cuban embargo is very interesting because it it goes back all the way to fulgencio batista and Eisenhower would stopped exporting of armaments to the Cuban armies. And then it gets reinvented and revised and becomes more and more inclusive which with every administration until, uh, in, you know, in the 58 and then in the sixties was widened to everything except food and meds after Castro takes oil fields and refineries without compensation. Oh, there's that energy thing again, kind of like with uh, Venezuela. That business thing again. Imagine, yeah, I know. So, and- um, Allende in Chile, back in the whatever. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, who could ever forget? Thank you, Henry Kissinger. That's right. So in, in, in 99, um, Bill Clinton expanded the embargo to foreign subsidiaries of US companies. So they couldn't get that. They, they couldn't work around that one again. And, um, you know, William Lagrande, who is by no means a left wing figure. This is the guy that was a, um, on the Democratic Policy Committee of the Senate for Latin America and the Democratic Caucus Task Force on Central America in the House. So he's speaking for Big Brother, if anybody is. And, and he says, you know, Cuba has the most. It, the oldest and most comprehensive U.S. sanctions regime against any other country in the world vis-a-vis -vis Cuba. And the embargo has never been effective at achieving its principal purpose, forcing Cubans' revolutionary regime out of power or bending to Washington's will. And this is an establishment guy? Mm -hmm. So it, it must be really flagrant to to get a guy who's so entrenched and has his pockets lined so fully to be saying such nasty things. Yeah. Well, and we're going to get to us sanctions uh, in a little, little bit in the show here, but. Oh God. I didn't um, yeah. That. So okay. the, the uh, it, it sounds like that the, you know, I think the argument of Mexico and certainly Nicaragua, um, Bolivia, Cuba, Venezuela, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, probably add in there. I think Brazil is not coming into. Am I right about that, or is that? I I just checked, and I'm surprised that Ecuador is participating because um, present president of um, Ecuador is a Marxist and right. a and right. an and a and an economist right. and a banker. Soon. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah, and there's some, there's some like Chile's participating, and they're, and they have uh, right. more, more of a left wing government. I think that, and, and they may have strategic reasons for doing that, but I, I do think that um, it is a, 
uh, one thing about nationalism, right? It's it applies to every country. <laughs> so right. So the the U.S. thinks, well, we we run the the summit of the Americas for our national interest in our right, national interest right. and just saying that in looking at China as our main competitor, right. Or whatever, whatever that means um, is uh, that's in the U S national interest and mm-hmm. trying to have a economic program for Latin America in the interests of U S national uh, national interest uh, it, it's kind of refreshing to see Latin American countries standing up and say, well, wait a minute now. That's Amen. that's Amen. They're, they're yeah. up for their own nation's self-interest. Right. It's and, gathering momentum. <laughs> yeah. I it will is. say Absolutely. it's a sea change, but let's hope that the momentum is maintained. So with those people that are not participating, um, that represents 200 million people south of the border. So a lot of that's Mexico, but. Right. It, it's still substantial percentage of the population of the region. Right. I heard somebody, some commentator addressing his or her, you know, um, interlocutor there on television a couple of days ago. That's I know. Good Latin no, cognate. I like that. Yeah. Right. Um, but and this person was musing, well, can you even have a summit of the Americas if the if Venezuela and Mexico, blah, 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 aren't there? And the other person said, sure you can. The U.S. wasn't there last year, <laughs> right? But we just oh. have this ethnocentric idea of what the what America is, right? That we think. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Right? Uh, so, so it's not as though we're the only country there, right? And okay. other countries have their own nationalism and so on and so forth. Right. But it was really kind That's of interesting. Person say, "Can you even do it without Mexico and Venezuela?" And he said, "Yeah, they did it last year quite on their own. Amazingly, amazingly." Right. Well, and there's a there's a, a rival um, to the U.S. What, what what is the name of the like the the Council Organization of American States. That's it. Thank OAS. you. Oh. OAS, right? Oh, and they and they were the ones who we covered this actually in the show during the attempted coup that was supported by the U.S. The OAS came out and said, "Oh, oh this, the 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 coup uh, the coup right. leaders, yeah, they're the legitimate leaders of Bolivia." And the people oh. voted them out like crazy. I mean, they had an election and they got slaughtered in the elections because. The, and, and so the OAS lost, I mean, if it had any credibility, let's put it that way, lost a bunch of credibility because they were backing, uh, you know, regime change, violent regime change. Oh, they never the, do that. As the U.S. State Department was. Right. The, the right. United States government was um, in Bolivia, contrary to the wishes of the Bolivians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and, uh, you know, so in, in the, uh, a lot of Latin American countries are, I think it's ALBA, A-L-B-A, and I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's, it's being organized, <laughs> it's been organized for a while, right? I think Cuba is really the main uh, country, you know, promoting okay. that as a, as a, as a yeah. alliance of American nations, that leaves the U.S. Mm-hmm. out. <laughs> so, so anyway, there you go. Um, yeah, and and who can forget the the heroic attempt to make Juan Gallardo the uh, the 
the new man in Venezuela. <laughs> right. right. That was laughable, right? Guaido. Guaido. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, like, Guaido. He, he, ran, he ran in an election and lost, and then he was proclaimed the leader of Venezuela <laughs> by Trump, right? That's right. Um, so it's like, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. Um, so, you know, good for them standing up to the U.S. I do think that given, I, I think really the historic blunder of U.S. supporting a proxy war with Russia in the Ukraine, and the U.S. sanctions, which we'll get to, that just devastating U.S. sanctions, which is hurting Europe and the United States Everybody. more than it is Russia, mm-hmm. um, is, uh, you know, I, I think that's r- handwriting on the wall to a lot of countries. They're saying, hmm, you know, uh, uh, you know, and also like, you know, President Biden, you know, uh, on his authority, there was billions of dollars of Afghani money stolen, right? Taken from U.S. Mm-hmm. banks uh, just recently within the last uh, half year. Uh, mm. And he's, and mm-hmm. we'll get to this too, but he basically said, well, this is in reparation to the 9-11. Well, there was no Afghanis involved with no, 9/11, no. number one. And Absolutely. people are starving in Afghanistan. I mean, right. they're on the brink of starvation, ma- major uh, concern and a lot of the 9/11 people are writing back to him saying we don't want that money that's Afghani's money they they should use right. that to you know to develop their country and to stave off starvation um, so you know the hubris you know, that, has no end the 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 Afghan story is very dispiriting. <laughs> Yeah, it's disgusting, it, like, actually. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a crime against humanity happening mm-hmm. in the game right now. I mm-hmm. think. So many situations like that throughout the world. Yeah, uh, Darfur, Syria, Israel. Right. Where mm-hmm. the, the the participants are not the people who make the choices right. or mm-hmm. benefit from the outcomes. Yep, breaks my heart. You are listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it on Missoula Community Radio. In the Missoula Valley, that is KFGM 105.5 FM from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturdays and at other times. Uh, Live streaming at the same time on 1055kfgm.org and on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana, all spelled out, or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. Hi, my name is Sarah McLean. I'm an organizer with the Western Montana Democratic Socialists of America, and this is our recent editorial in the Missoulian. Approve Grant Creek Rezoning. Everybody knows Missoula is in a housing emergency that is becoming a generational crisis for young people. Housing scarcity creates numerous problems. It grants investors more incentive to gobble up homes. It drives up their rents. It gives bad landlords too much leverage. It increases the likelihood of housing discrimination. It magnifies the effects of evictions. It pushes gentrification across the entire community. 
Housing scarcity gives big developers much more power over local governance and diminishes the opportunity and capacity of small-time builders to get a foothold. The 2020 Expo Parkway Rezone and Development Agreement offers 200 more residential units on top of the current zoning's allowance for about 500. The addition grants the developer financial space to increase the larger multi-unit buildings to four stories, which increases green space, and adds elevators, which makes most of those units more accessible for people with physical challenges. Compared to the resistance to development in core neighborhoods we have seen previously in Missoula, the scope and depth of the Grant Creek residents' expressions of wealth and power via hired gun attorney letters, hired gun engineering firm opinions, special interest group wildfire risk task force reports, is absolutely breathtaking. From a certain point of view, one may be led to believe that Grant Creek residents are essentially trying to buy their way out of shouldering a fair share of addressing Missoula's housing emergency. The Montana Department of Transportation already had recently added Grant Creek departure lanes at I-90 that were not warranted at the time, but ironically had been Grant Creek residents' cause for many years. So that was the infrastructure before this added housing. Also, somewhat different from those other drainages, a scan of Google Earth shows there are three or four potential gravel routes out of Grant Creek that could augment an evacuation in case of emergency. We managed to routinely evacuate 25,000 people from UM on game day, but the elephant in the room is that most of Grant Creek's existing housing, which is spread northwards, does not provide the necessary value intensity to pay for its own municipal services or long-term infrastructure upkeep. Grant Creek is, in effect, asking the rest of the community to subsidize a low-density lifestyle in perpetuity. Adding 200 units will help correct that imbalance. As Grant Creek already got its longed-for right turn pocket onto I-90, and the rezone in itself would meet only 300 new residents at the bottom of the drainage, about 200 additional units times 1.5 person average household size, the real and important question surrounding development in Missoula is, are we experiencing a housing crisis, especially imposed on the working class? If so, is it exhibiting the effect of a generational crisis? And if so, are all neighborhoods fairly sharing the burden of additional housing? I submit that an unfolding generational crisis is the serious issue and is a critical discussion point regarding any development proposals such as this. Missoula's center of gravity has been shifting west so is this not part of the urban core? Only three miles to the Orange Street exit, there is a bike pedestrian trail planned to parallel the interstate, and business interests are constantly pushing for a coal mine road interstate exit. What is missing in Grant Creek, other than more working class citizens, that would complement this development? 
mixed-use small retail, banking, and services in the immediate vicinity north of I-90. Yes, we live in a valley, and yes, we can find ways to share it. Well, one contributing factor to Latin American countries shying away from the summit of the Americas is the long and sordid history of U.S. economic sanctions against Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, and Nicaragua, among others. A June 7th blog by Jomo Kwame Sundaram and Anas Chowdhury entitled U.S. Lead Sanctions Killing Millions to No End, describes the death and destruction visited on these and other nations by the allegedly nonviolent economic sanctions. This, they write this, this is kind of a litany here. Um, food crises, economic stagnation, and price increases are worsening unevenly almost everywhere. Following the Ukraine war, sanctions against Russia have especially hurt those relying on wheat and fertilizer imports. Unilateral sanctions not approved by the UN Security Council are illegal under international law. So these, these economic sanctions that Biden has imposed on Russia are illegal under international law. Um, but hmm. uh, You don't hear that anywhere else. But No, you don't. KFG, yeah. Um, besides contravening the UN Charter, um, much more seriously, unilateral sanctions inflict, inflict much human loss. Countless civilians, many far from target countries, are at risk, depriving them of much, even life itself. Sanctions, embargoes, and blockades, sold as nonviolent alternatives to waging war by military means, economically isolate and punish targeted countries, supposedly to force them to acquiesce. But most sanctions hurt the innocent majority much more than the ruling elites. Like laying siege on enemy settlements, sanctions are a weapon of mass starvation. They are silent killers. People die in their homes. Nobody is counting. The human costs are considerable and varied, but largely overlooked. Knowing they are mere collateral damage will not endear any victim to the sanctions' true purpose. The U.S. has imposed more sanctions for longer periods than any other nation. During the 1990-2005 period, the U.S. imposed a third of sanction, sanctions regimes worldwide. These were inflicted on more than 1,000 entities or individuals yearly in 2016 to 2020, nearly 80% more than in 2008-2015. Thus, the Trump administration raised the U.S. share of all sanctions to almost half. Tens of millions of Afghans, which we've been speaking of, mm -hmm. uh, now face food insecurity, even starvation, as the U.S. has seized its uh, 9.5 billion U.S. dollars central bank reserves. President Biden's uh, February 11, 2022 executive order gives half of this to the 9-11 victim families, although no Afghan was ever found responsible for the atrocity. Biden claims the rest will be for quite, quote, humanitarian crises, presumably as decided by the White House. Mm -hmm. He remains silent about the countless victims of the U.S.'s two-decade-long war in Afghanistan, where airstrikes alone at least killed 48,308 civilians. Now, the U.S.-controlled World Bank and IMF both block access to financial resources for Afghanistan. The long U.S. war 
massive population displacement and physical destruction have made it much more vulnerable and foreign aid dependent. The six decade long US trade embargo has cost Cuba at least 130 billion US dollars. It causes shortages of food, medicine, and other essential items to this day. Meanwhile, Washington continues to ignore the UN General Assembly's call to lift its blockade because it's illegal. The US-backed Israeli blockade of the densely populated Gaza Strip has inflicted at least 17 uh, billion US dollars in losses. Besides denying Gaza's population access to many imported supplies, including medicines, bombing and repression make life miserable for its besieged people. Meanwhile, the US supports the Saudi-led coalition's war on Yemen with its continued blockade of the poorest Arab nation. U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have ensured the worst for Yemenis under the siege. Blocking essential goods, including food, fuel, and medical supplies, that seems to be a theme there, has mm-hmm. intensified the world's worst ongoing humanitarian crisis. Meanwhile, years of famine, including starving to, to death a Yemeni, a Yemeni child starves to death every 75 seconds right now. Um, that has been aggravated by the largest cholera outbreak anywhere in history. Oh. Humanitarian disasters and destroying lives and livelihoods are excused as inevitable collateral damage. Acknowledging, yeah. yep, acknowledging mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of Iraqi child deaths due to U.S. sanctions after the 1991 invasion, uh, ex-U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright deemed the price worth it. Poverty yeah. levels poverty levels in countries under U.S. sanctions are 3.8 percentage points higher on average than in other comparable countries. Such negative impacts rose with their duration, while unilateral and U.S. sanctions stood out as most effective. Clearly, the U.S. government has not hesitated to wage war by other means. Its recent sanctions threaten living costs worldwide, reversing progress everywhere, especially for the most vulnerable. Yet U.S.-led unilateral sanctions against Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, and other countries have failed to achieve their purportive objectives, namely to change regimes or at least regime behavior. As Cuba, Iran, Afghanistan, and Venezuela were not major food or fertilizer exporters, their own populations have suffered most from the sanctions against them. But Russia, Ukraine, and even Belarus are significant producers and exporters. Hence, sanctions against Russia and Belarus have much wider international implications, especially for European fuel supplies. More ominously, they threaten food security not only now, but also in the future as fertilizer supplies are cut off. With tepid growth since the 2008 global financial crisis, the West now blocks economic recovery. Vaccine apartheid, deliberate supply disruptions, and deflationary policies now disrupt international economic integration, which was once pushed by the West, end quote. What do you think of that, Linda? I just keep thinking, why does anyone think that this kind of sanction is going to work to win hearts and minds, right? Mm-hmm. What we're doing is killing people. 
Yes. By other means, by starvation. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, you know, as long as the United States can figure out how to deal with its own gas and oil supplies, uh, we, we're not worried about what's going to happen to everybody else, not Europe, certainly not supplies of food to um, anybody which uses Ukrainian or Russian wheat. I mean, and that was the that was mm -hmm. the wheat basket, right? That was the bread right. basket of right. a great part of the world. Um, and, and then we ask, why do they hate us? Yeah, right. right. Why yeah. do they hate us? Well, I don't think it's because we're free. I think it's because we treat them like excrement. Yeah. 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 Well, but anyway, that's what I have. It's not very informed. No, that was... but, but I mean, we've done it everywhere and we act as though this is going to bring down a government or ameliorate the behavior of government, whatever. And I just don't think it ever has. No. You know, yeah. and I, I think the hearts and minds that are being aimed at here are the American people and the people of Europe. Right. I think that's that's who they're targeting, right, with this, mm -hmm. because they learned in Vietnam that wars are, are, are not popular in this country and they still aren't popular. Right. You can. Uh -huh. Right. Uh, th this is something that uh, both the right and the left share, I think, um, profoundly. Um, and so, because we can't send, you know, our own folks in, into the line of fire, into danger to, to be killed and, lo yeah. and lose, you know, they've, they, you know, we actually have boxed in the, the, uh, the elite in this country, um, to, uh, basically visit that death and destruction elsewhere, but it's totally ineffective. Like you say, I mean, it's not, it's not doing its purpose, mm -hmm. except it's, continuing you know the the fiction that we're promoting uh peace and democracy around the world right yeah that that Talk missive that. that you just shared with us mark really sums it up yeah it it just shows it's the same old people in positions of authority that make things go wrong i'm i am not on record of having anything nice to say about madeline albright and um, a contemporary of hers, um, you know, Gorbachev, was in, going in the opposite direction. You know, he he uh, was he's from a community in the western Ukraine that it's about sixteen syllables and it's impronounceable. <laughs> Otherwise, I would drop it here and and sound scholarly. And half of the population of the town he lived in died of starvation. Mm. And when he was in a position of authority, he saw the world differently. And the lesson was learned. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I think there's hope. Um, I have no reason to have hope. <laughs> but um, if the leaders of the future have been submitted to the indignities of the past, um, they may take a stand. And let's hope that happens. Well, uh, and we need regime change here. So oh, we yeah, sure exactly. do. Why don't That's we? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Change the regime. Mm -hmm. Change the regime. Sounds like a good name for a punk group. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Rage right. against the regime. The machine. Rage against. <laughs> yeah. Ra yeah. Yeah. Tom Morello. Right. Uh -huh. yeah. Um, The last news story is going to be 
good news, right, Mark? Oh, uh, can well, you do that for us? Leave us on um, a high note. <laughs> it's it's actually about well, it's not about a good topic, but at least it it it's hopeful in in, in perhaps it's prescription, right? So. And well, almost everyone is, people aren't talking about January 6th. People aren't talking about Russia, Ukraine in this country. They're talking about inflation, right? And how because much- Because they've been told to think it's important. Well, but it is important, Jim, because okay. I just, we just had a a friend over today and it, it, it took over $200 to fill up with diesel in their extra large tank pickup truck. Mm-hmm. Now that's that's a chunk of change, right? And so I just bought diesel yesterday, also. Yes, so. and so I'm feeling the pain. Yeah, exactly. See, so so you're you're talking about it. You're thinking about it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. I'm aware of it. You're aware of it. Yes, yeah. and and you know, inflation has been like non-existent, right? We had some deflation mm-hmm. at uh, you know over the last decade or or so. Yep. But it seems like everyone has their favorite cause. Uh, or favorite reason why we're having inflation, right? Some blame the unprecedented fiscal spending to deal with the pandemic, like the CARES Act and other COVID relief to Mm -hmm. businesses, governments, and individuals, right? Uh, Some blame the excess printing, quote unquote, printing of money to pay for this relief. Some blame the higher wages workers were able to get during the pandemic. Actually, uh, one Larry Summers, who... I'm not even sure why anyone listens to him anymore. Um, he's been, he's been, in fact, if people should listen to him and then do the exact opposite and you'd be closer to what really is going <laughs> on, um, you know, an economist in the Obama administration. Um, and uh, some blame, you know, the higher wages workers were able to get during the pandemic, you know, for God's sake. Others just simply blame Biden, right? Which I think is wrong too. Um, but in a thorough study, Using the latest economic data, uh, a man by the name of Servas Storm, that's a hell of a name, Servas Storm, has, re- <laughs> has revealed some clarity about our current inflation in his article, Inflation in a Time of Corona and War, published on June 6th on the Institute for New Economic Thinking website. Storm is a Dutch economist and author mm-hmm. who works on macroeconomics and is a senior lecturer at Delft University of Technology uh, in, in the Netherlands. I won't go into the mathematical an, a, analysis details for, for which, I mean, you, you know, listeners, you could go look it up online if you wish, right, mm-hmm. and, and dive into it. Um, and I'm going to, it's a little bit long, but I've really tried to summarize his, his main points. And um, so he said, he starts this way, he says, I attempt to recover the lost plot of what's going on with the economy, arguing that the recent inflation has mostly supply side origins caused by the COVID-19 crisis and the Ukraine war, and has been enabled by mistaken past and current macroeconomic policy choices. The paper His paper that he writes takes a close look at the current inflation in the U.S., showing that it is not due to a generalized uh, co-movement of all prices, but to a number of sector-specific price increases in industries strongly affected by global commodity chain disruptions. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about that in the past, right? right? Um, And like, I mean, just as an example, 
uh, neoliberal capitalism, basically the ideology uh, allowed the making of all these masks uh, to be done in China. And when mm-hmm. COVID broke <laughs> out, there was no masks in the United States. There was no productive capacity to make masks that that uh, would uh, like the, 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 the N95 type masks right. that really do that. And so uh, it certainly was neoliberalism that said, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, well, it's cheaper to do it in China. Let's let's outsource all the production of that. Right. So that's just one small but notable example. Um, yeah, it was an example of a whole bunch of things. Because yes, there were abuses by the powers that be where the available masks went and whose favor was satisfied oh well that sort of tail top to bottom yeah a a little bit of corruption mixed in with that too yes Um, oh this is america we don't do that that's right um so his paper um uh he continues um the corona crisis has been seriously stress testing the resilience of the global supply chains right brought by you know free trade the neoliberalism uh ideology of free trade that have developed during the three decades of neoliberal globalization, right? He names it right there. And the system has been found wanting to say Mm -hmm. the least. In this paper, I consider the global supply of US inflation in more detail and investigate how global supply chains disruptions and higher global commodity prices have raised US import prices. I find that higher import inflation has been directly responsible for almost one third of the increase in the inflation rate during 2021-2022. Further in my paper, I present data on accelerating inflation in the rest of the world. So like as if inflation is only in the US, right? It's That's not, it's, mm-hmm. it's all around the world. These data underline the fact that the rise in US inflation is by no means exceptional. Almost all other economies are experiencing similar surges in inflation as the, as the US. Inflation is running well above central bank inflation targets in all advanced economies. In most, central banks have so far reacted to the increase in inflationary pressures with a gradual response, tapering off unconventional monetary policy support induced during the pandemic, in, which is like, in this country, the CARES Act, right, for example, mm-hmm. COVID relief and raising policy rates, okay, which means they're, they're the, the interest, you know, the interest rates. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, differences in the magnitude of fiscal relief responses to the corona crisis between countries are not showing up in statistically significant differences in the inflation rates. This suggests that fiscal policy, like spent, like the Congress allocating money for COVID relief is not a key driver of inflation. The impacts of the global supply shock were amplified by supply side bottlenecks within the U.S. economy, including inefficiencies in U.S. ports and a shortage of long haul truck drivers, which continues to this day. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, the most important domestic supply constraint triggered by COVID-19 arose from the sharp decline in the labor force of the U.S. The average monthly employment shortfall was around 8 million people in 2021. 
The estimated employment shortfall in March of 2022 is 4 million workers. As yeah. elaborated in this paper, the Bureau of Labor Statistics data show that during the period May to December of 2020, more than 40% of the estimated employment shortfall was caused by persons not in the labor force who did not look for a job in the last four weeks because of the coronavirus pandemic. I think that's even low, actually. Um, mm -hmm. For many workers, the coronavirus outbreak was the main reason for quitting a job <clears throat> directly because doing the job had a high risk of getting infected, but also indirectly because the job offered no or insufficient health care, lacked the flexibility to choose when to put in one's hours, did not allow for working remotely, or did not offer adequate childcare support. Ah, so this is all coming back to bite, you know, the, mm -hmm. the capitalists, right? Mm -hmm. in, in the spring of 2022, there are still around 1 million persons not in the labor force who did not look for a job in the last four weeks because of the coronavirus pandemic and around 3 million workers who decided to retire temporarily or permanently, primarily because of COVID-19. That's, that I would fit in that category. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As a result, in March, 2022, the US labor force still has 4 million fewer workers than in the non-corona counterfactual, or if coronavirus didn't happen, we're 4 million workers short. The sharp decline in the effective uh, labor force has led to a tightness of the U.S. labor market, which is showing up in a high vacancy ratio. As millions of workers disengage from the labor force by quitting or retiring, the number of job vacancies has risen sharply. It follows that as long as COVID-19 continues to pose a significant health risk, the U.S. labor market will remain tight. Finally, I estimate a more complete econometric model, which also includes supply side constraints. The estimations result suggests that, okay, there's here are some numbers. On average, 20.5% of rising inflation can be attributed to the rising job vacancy ratio. However, global commodity prices and capacity utilization play more prominent roles and account for 67% and 35% of inflation, okay? So there's a must be a lot of cross, you know, cross mixing here because that, that adds up to more than 100%. But mm -hmm. so- That's uh, inflation right there. That's that inflation right. of- that's right. Uh, yeah, right, that's a good one, Jim. Um, so, um, however, global commodity prices, oh, and, and which was 67% of the inflation rate and uh, capacity utilization or lack of utilization mm -hmm. is 35% of inflation. 20% is due to people retiring or not working, right? Mm -hmm. So hence the labor market tightens. Let's see. Um, hence the labor market tightness does contribute to U.S. inflation, but supply side constraints play a more important role. U.S. inflation is also being driven by the pricing power and higher profits of corporations. There is more than just anecdotal evidence that corporations with pricing power are using the current inflationary environment as a pretext to raise prices more than necessary because they do not have competitors to drive them to keep mm -hmm. prices down. Boy, Which is, amen. What do you know? Yep. Amen. 
Yeah. <clears throat> and and there's a name for that, okay? Which is called <laughs> strategic. Oh, greed. Corporate I, I, yeah. greed. Oh. Yeah. It, well, greed, yes. Um, <laughs> but it's it, the e economists call it strategic complementarity channel. That's, they would. I was married a, to an, a, an economist once, you know. Yeah. That, oh. <laughs> that's what they would call it. That's, that's what they would yeah. call it. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a corollary here. We were talking about international issues uh supply and demand and the and the international system mm -hmm. make making scarcity happen because it was um an a consequence of a of a just in time um yes. buy it from the big boy mentality or you know policy it's you know it's the right. way to make more money and well, now it's fewer and fewer suppliers which who have inordinate control over pricing and value yep so you know it's just yep. another snake exactly medusa's yeah. head and, and it's interesting you bring that up too jim because um the the idea of you know outsourcing right and you know manufacturing i mean a lot of manufacturing has mm -hmm. been gutted out of this country. there's still a lot of manufacturing but I mean, all the big, a lot of the big industries, I mean, we don't hardly make our own steel, you know, basic mm -hmm. stuff, economic stuff, right? Um, that, um, and I forget the point I was going to make. <laughs> so anyway, I'll move on. Um, I'll cut that piece out. Um, so strategic complement, complementarity channel uh, is the, is the phrase for that kind of greed. Um and to illustrate, if the price of imported cars increases, domestic car producers can also increase their prices because mm -hmm. there's no, there's, you know, mm -hmm. that's the comp, what the competition is doing, right? Sure. Sure. The strategic complementarity channel has been estimated to account for about 30% of the effect of higher import prices on U.S. inflation. The strategic complementarity channel does help to explain the profiteering by large U.S. corporations, which have been able to raise their profit margins to the highest level in 70 years. Yes. And still complain that, that the reason that, yes. is that people's wages have gone up. That's it. They're, they're oh, yeah. blaming workers for their own greed. Uh, using inflation as an excuse and help by algorithmic <laughs> pricing and, and artificial intelligence, mega corporations are choosing to raise prices to increase, increase their profit margins, and they hold enough market power to do so without fear of losing customers to other competitors. That's right. So it's this the company is, store. This is this is where neoliberal capitalism leads is to monopolies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that, and this is exactly what they're talking about: monopoly pricing. According to the Wall Street, and then if something breaks down, we're just stuck, like right. Abbott and Baby Formula, right? Yeah, there you go. Oh, There's another thanks for one. bringing they, that in. Then yeah. you know, right? Uh, yeah, they're not they're they're not investing their money into uh, uh, doing better products. They're just pocketing the money, and right, we right, get right. bad we get worse products at higher prices. Right. Well, um, it's all about price-earnings ratio. That is the it. law of the land. Mm -hmm. That is. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, and you know they're authoritative, nearly- right. And they're Murdoch, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> nearly two right. out of three of the biggest U.S. publicly traded companies had larger profit margins this year 
than they did in 2019, prior to the pandemic. Nearly 100 of these corporations did report profits in 2021 that are 50% above profit margins from 2019. Evidence from corporate earnings calls shows that CEOs are boasting about their pricing power, meaning the ability to raise prices without losing customers. And even the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, has weighed in on this issue, stating that large corporations with nearly monopolistic market power are, quote, <clears throat> raising prices because they can, end quote. And Jay Powell is such a liberal, or excuse me, such a progressive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, so Isn't this, this is storm continuing. I find that higher nominal wages accounted for around 10% of the increase in the U.S. producer price during 20, uh, 2020 to 2021. But the increase in net profits per unit of gross output accounted for more than one-third of the price increases. In other words, more than 38% of the rise in U.S. inflation rate during 2020 to 2022 has been due to fatter profit margins. Oh, boy. Surprise. Yeah. Surprise. No, this is, <laughs> this is all from surprised? the, okay. Yeah. Now, was, was this, was this um, mentioned by, by the Dutch guy who in uh, Delft or is, is this uh, yes. independent research, Mark? Or is this is no, no, this is, this is all paper. storm. Yeah. The, the Dutch. Okay. I got storm. you. Right. So Boy, um, that was, <laughs> and, but he continues, he's right? He's aptly more. named. Yes, serve <laughs> mm -hmm. storm. Um, but there's but there's more, okay, and and it gets more, um, you know, into the prescriptions about what he <clears throat> would say is what needs to happen, right? So, um, you in in order, so like any good doctor, you have to diagnose the illness properly before you can give the right treatment, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, he says, this is what he says. Uh, uh, he, he says, he, you know, it's kind of a, a, a question for, uh, you know, for argument's sake. So can the Federal Reserve safely bring down inflation? The answer is a categorical no. The available empirical evidence is clear that small increases in the interest rate, which is what they're doing now, do not have much of an effect on inflation, which is what is going to mm -hmm. be turning out. In fact, they've, the Fed has had extremely little influence over inflation over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, and, and that's been, that's been kind of widely shared. Uh, finally, he says, I consider more of the longer run context and focus specifically on the unavoidable inflationary impacts of global warming. Okay. The mm. key issue facing macroeconomic policymakers is this, how to deal with rising prices while also accelerating a green structural economic transition. When addressing this issue, central bankers appear to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. This is because central bankers supposedly have to trade off safeguarding future financial stability by keeping interest rates low today uh, supporting the climate transition, but allowing for higher inflation in the short to medium run versus bringing down inflation in the short run to medium run, um, but at the cost of slowing the transition to a net zero economy and allowing for higher inflation in the longer run. The trade-off 
is a false one, however, right? Mm-hmm. This is, and, and I just stop for a second. The, the, classic, the, the classical economists talk about the, the Fed have over interest rates, having this uh, magic sort of key in balancing off inflation versus unemployment. That's the classic economics, you know, that, that mm-hmm. I was taught, mm-hmm. you know, when I was in school uh, about uh, uh, macroeconomics, okay? So that um, you send people into unemployment in order to dampen inflation, or you let inflation rise in order to get less people off, off of unemployment, right? Get more people employed. But he's saying the trade this trade-off is a false one. The reason is that slowing the climate transition is not an option. Another mm-hmm. decade of unmitigated global warming and crisis will lock the climate system into an unmanageable self-reinforcing process of climate change, which risks putting us, humanity as a whole, on a one-way journey to hothouse earth. Mm-hmm. On that road, inflation rates will rise and become completely uncontrollable while financial stability will be jeopardized. In other words, in the face of of the growing risks of catastrophic climate disaster, I'm adding that he says change, but I'm gonna add in disaster, macroeconomic policy needs to be guided by only one principle. It is better to be safe than sorry. Hence, monetary policy should be made to support the transition to a net zero carbon economy, and inflation control must be unconditionally subordinated to this overriding Mm. aim. Because what he's saying, if it isn't, then we're going to have uncontrolled and we're going to lose our whole financial system. Right. And everything else. And everything else, right? I mean, he's speaking, I'm just speaking, just, you know, just the financial side of things here. Yeah. Green fiscal policy and green industrial policies will have to do the heavy lifting, but these policies must be supported by and not undermined by a sufficiently accommodative interest rate policy. A supportive monetary policy by the Federal Reserve in the U.S. will also include tightening risk and accountability regulations for banks and businesses so as to more rapidly Mm -hmm. phase out funding for fossil fuel activities. Right. Dual interest rates by offering a preferential discount for green lending, tighter regulation to eliminate commodity speculation. I mean, they could start with cryptocurrency to begin with um, and and oil and and other uh, and some version of green qualitative easing to help the decarbonization of the economy. Monetary policy has to be reimagined to make it support the climate energy transition rather than Mm -hmm. obstruct it, as is the case now. Central bankers have to come down or be brought down from their Olympus and Mm -hmm. act in alignment with the imperative of the net zero transition. Financial markets need to serve the economy rather than live like parasites on it by means of speculation, socially useless regulatory Mm -hmm. arbitraging and rent seeking. Boy, and he's, he's kind of moving out of his, uh, his academia, right? Um, That's right. There, he says there are no quick fixes. All this may well mean that inflation rates should be allowed to be higher for some time than the target of 2%. And that alternative measures to control inflation and manage the societal and economic impacts of inflation have to adapt. 
a reimagining of monetary policymaking in the face of global warming is long overdue. Yeah, and that was absolutely brilliant. And, and, and I offer that if you, if you want to look at another apex and simplify the question even more, you know, go back to Richard Wolff's argument of, uh, you know, it's this very, very simple equation. There is work, surplus labor, which is profit, and and the net cost of a product and let's look and if you look at the profit levels of the uh, of the ownership class they're um really irresponsible so i think it's time for a government or a collection of governments to come in and say okay we're rewriting the equation it's going to be labor subsidies as needed for a green economy transition and then you can have a reasonable amount of profit and get on board or go find another planet mm-hmm. or do away with the profit altogether right um <laughs> yeah. well you know you gotta profit keep the is rich. just stolen you wages. gotta keep the rich profit is stolen yeah. oh i agree i agree um yeah. but that's that's a little more succinct linda you know Oh, there you go. Um, I, I was trying to be polite, but I know. what's the <laughs> point? Polite guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's um, the, the the way we're currently going. Neoliberalism is going to destroy the thing that it's supposed to uphold, and that's and that's a, a vital economy. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's. I mean, right, right, right. Uh, it, 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 that's just in short, right. It's just it, it's this shibboleth that too many people have believed in for so long. You know, I, I to me, the parallel is the Aztec religion. Um, everybody knows you have to drag some slave or, you know, captured person up to the top of the um, you know pyramid and carve his heart out with an obsidian knife because the sun won't come up. How do we know that for sure? Um do you want to find out if it won't? <laughs> yeah. And that's where we are. That's yeah. where we you are. have to pay <laughs> off the people that own everything already and give them a bigger and bigger increment of, of your falling wages in respect to cost of goods and services, or the whole world will be plunged into darkness. Yep. That's and socially before, before we even get to the plunge into darkness, I think. I think the kind of thing you've just been talking about, Jim, is what's giving us so many of our social problems today. Yes. When you get back to outsourcing stuff, um, it really demeans workers and it demeans the people who have, mm-hmm. and it demeans their work. If, if all it's about is let's find the cheapest person to do it, then we've got, then we say to other people, oh, go to, go to um, college or whatever, right? So I think that socially, this is also a source of many of our problems now that we've got folks who feel so excluded. Right. And uh, because anything that they did before, we don't do here anymore, right? Right. And I think the present era has, was foreshadowed by industrialization at all 150 or 200 years ago when people are moving off the farm and working in a mill and of i i'm I'm tempted to try to do a deep dive into what was the literature at that time and what 
where who were the malcontents and what were their criticisms? <laughs> well, yeah. for, fortunately, we have a podcast here that could uh, serve that purpose <laughs> for the right end. <laughs> well, you know, there's a book that I really love to read called Breaking Things at Work. And then, and it is that says, done by the Luddites? Yeah, exactly. Luddites, <laughs> readers, leaders. But, you know, what he's trying to say is there's a reason you hate your work, mm -hmm. you hate your job, right? And the Luddites were the ones who went around breaking up these machines, right? That uh, uh, kind of sabotaging uh, the big <sighs> machines that were killing their lives. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Here you go. Anyway, okay. It's all part of a whole, you know? Yeah, exactly. The current era is just a reflection of what preceded it that didn't get fixed then. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. And we created a, a, a few new problems too, uh, to boot. Oh, so. oh, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that will uh, be for another show. Yeah. Or, yeah. If there is another show, maybe. <laughs> maybe global <laughs> warming will take away our antenna. There, there, yeah. there will be. Yeah. Okay. As is our theme here. We definitely promote the cause, the cause of strong democratic unions. Sort of fits right in. Um, besides the third wave workers of Missoula at Black Coffee Roasters, there are efforts to do more union organizing in Western Montana, among other coffee and service industry workers as well. That's right, Jim. This is sort of our unpaid ad here <laughs> in this <laughs> show. The it's only volunteer ad radio. It's all unpaid. That's right. Um, so anyone who works in Western Montana who is interested in organizing on the job or knows someone who does, you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at <clears throat> the email address is westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T. E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com or by leaving a message at 406-924-3830. That's 406-924-3830. Operators are standing by. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our new website at www.1015kfgm.org. That's 1015kfgm.org. And you can make it there. Everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thanks. Please join us every week on Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. America first, the cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change, and it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family's broken, and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming.
Still holding up this little wild bouquet Democracy is coming 